0: Bitcoin was born in a financial crisis. It will come of age in this one.
1: That was Pantera, a suitable intro for today's guest, veteran investor Dan Moorhead, the CEO of Pantera Capital. Hello there. Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. How are you all coping with the lockdown? Are you all doing well? I'm here in Bedford, adapting to this new life, thinking about a post-coronavirus world. Anyway, let's get on with the show. But firstly, we are going to hear about my amazing show sponsors, who I couldn't make this without. So first up we have the amazing BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. And this week I sat down with Zach and Flory, the co-founders of BlockFi. We talked about how they managed the recent volatile conditions. That will be out next week. And we also get into some of the questions that people have around the company. They have absolutely crushed it as a business. They've just raised another $30 million and they will crush it this year as well. Now, if you don't know BlockFi, they have two main products right now. They have their interest accounts, which allows you to put your crypto to work and earn monthly interest payments. They also have their crypto-backed loans, which allow you to access liquidity without selling. By using your crypto as collateral, you can unlock up to 50% of the value of your assets in USD. If you are interested in checking out BlockFi, I recommend you do your own research, then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, we have the mighty Kraken, the best place for trading Bitcoin. And have you checked out their beautiful mobile first app? Have you used it? Have you tried it out? Come on, go and download it. Whether you're sat at home in your garden trying to get some of this Easter sun or sat on the couch watching the Tiger King, you can now trade Bitcoin on the go. And despite all this price volatility, the crisis has seen a huge surge in interest in crypto and Kraken are hiring. They are looking to increase their workforce by 10%. Kraken provides you with a broad suite of tools for trading Bitcoin. You've got everything from Kraken.com for your traditional trading all the way up to their OTC desk. They are the most secure crypto exchange. They provide their customers with world-class support. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to Kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Alright, so onto the show, and today we have a veteran investor and the CEO of the best named investment fund, Pantera Capital. I have wanted to get down on the show for a long, long time. I mean, mainly, I just wanted to find out if, like me, he is a 90s thrash metal fan. But also, following the monster blog post he wrote this week about crypto in this financial crisis, I wanted to get him on. I wanted to get his take on all this crazy shit that's going on. A couple of weeks ago, I did an interview with Rao Powell covering the current macro economy situation, and it was a fascinating conversation for me, but I still had questions. So I got in touch with Dan, asked him to come on and discuss the economy in a post-coronavirus world, where he sees the opportunities and where he sees Bitcoin's role in all of this. So I hope you enjoy this one. If you've got any questions, you know you can hit me up. My email address is hello at did.com. Also, a couple of things. If you want some additional content, if you haven't checked out my other podcast, Defiance, please do go and check out that. Some other interesting interviews there outside of the Bitcoin space also you can check out my two films that i've made that's all available at defiance.news also i've got a poker tournament this sunday i'll explain more about that later but my other sponsor Sportsbet.io, have put a bitcoin up in prizes if you want to register for that please head over to my twitter and find the link there all right onto the show hope you enjoy this one morning dan how are you
0: great peter thanks for having me on
1: not a problem You probably don't know this. I've wanted you on the show for quite a long time.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah, we did a period of not doing much uh, media, but I think there's something really big going on in the world right now. So we're very happy to share that. Thank you.
1: But I've always had a question I've wanted to ask you. And it's either going to be the answer is either going to fill me full of joy or leave me flat. But where did the name for the fund come from?
0: Oh, I can tell by the smile on your face, you might be a hard rock aficionado. We did not, in fact, name it after the band, which which would be great. I used to work at Tiger Management, and all of the fun names were named after big cats, Panther, Puma, oh. all that. And so as a homage to Julian Robertson and Tiger, I picked Pantera, which is Panther in Italian and Spanish. And then it also suits a global macro hedge fund perfectly, because Pantera means spanning the earth in Latin.
1: Well, for me, Pantera means a global, Not is it a vulgar display of power? It's a uh, '90s hard rock. I was a massive, huge Pantera fan. I saw them play Donington, so I've Are you always serious? looked for fu- a serious. I saw them play Donington, Monsters of Rock. Phil Anselmo, the singer, had his knee fully clasped up because he popped his knee, and uh, yeah, one of the highlights of my childhood. So whenever I've seen the fun name, I was like, "Really? Has this got anything to do with the Pantera?" But no, clearly it hasn't. So uh, anyway, great to get you on the show finally. Um, so you know, this is a Bitcoin-only show, but and I also tend to keep things a little bit more simple. I, I, I tend to dedicate my show to uh, for people who don't have maybe the time to spend hours upon hours reading about markets, reading about Bitcoin. So sometimes when you're explaining things, I might get you to uh, maybe explain it a, a little more simply than, when, than you would normally do. Are you okay with that?
0: Oh, no, that's, that's my level of understanding as well.
1: All right, good, good. All right, well, listen, look, very strange times right now. And uh, I'm here in the UK, which is uh, very strange at the moment. And you're in, I believe you're in San Francisco, right?
0: Yeah, in uh, Woodside, Silicon Valley.
1: And how are things there at the moment?
0: Uh, It's actually kind of calm. You know, our county was one of the first to go shelter in place. So it's it's actually almost three weeks now. And uh, people seem to be kind of getting into the rhythm of it. I saw a really cool stat the New York Times did today on the movement of people in various cities. And San Jose, which is right next to us in San Francisco, a certain segment of the society literally has zero movement. <laughs> They're literally staying at home. So, uh, wow, you know, it really has, everything's kind of shut down.
1: Wow. All right. Well, listen, before we get into this, because I'm going to use uh, your most recent newsletter, Crypto in Crisis, as a, as a structure for what we're going to talk about today. But just give people uh, a background to your career so they understand the context of this interview and the things you've done in your career
0: sure so i started out as the first asset-backed securities trader at goldman sachs so it's the mid-80s uh mortgage-backed securities were just you know coming into their own and trading asset-backed securities like auto loans credit cards was was just starting and it's pretty wild now to be trading asset-backed tokens you know so we've come full circle uh in 30 years And then I transitioned into global macro hedge fund trading. So, you know, trading big disruptions, which is incredibly relevant today. Um, And then ultimately went to Tiger Management in the late 90s, working with Julian Robertson and really just trying to find big disruptions in the world. Things like Russian privatization or Middle Eastern equities or Argentine farmland. You know, something like that would come up every once in a while. But when I saw Bitcoin in 2011, It started, you know, kind of really piqued my interest. And it took a year or so to really get my head around it. But I I came to believe it was going to be by far the biggest disruption of my career. And I still believe that. I I think it's, you know, orders of magnitude bigger than those other trades that I did. And and those other trades I did were were fun, they were interesting, we made some money. But I think Bitcoin's actually going to change the world for the better. And I think billions of people are going to be, their lives are going to be better off for Bitcoin. So You know obviously it's my career and you know we manage money for other people where our job is to give them the best returns we can but a huge part of this is you know i really think when we look back a couple decades from now bitcoin is going to have changed the world and it's kind of uh it's fun to be a small part of that
1: wow okay so you've had a career of over 30 years in financial markets i guess you've never stopped looking at the markets And you've probably traded and lived through some very complicated times. 9-11, obviously, for the US, that impacted globally, but was a human disaster. But also it was an economic disaster for a short period of time. And you've also lived through 2007 to 2009, the recession there. What we're going through now, how do you you take this all in and put that into context for you and, and your career so far?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really grateful that I've had 35 years of trading these disruptions and cycles because I think that perspective has been in, been very helpful. We sent a note around uh, internally just three weeks ago, it was March 10th, only half of the economists on Bloomberg were predicting a recession in the United States. And I, I sent a note saying, this is crazy. It's a 100.0% chance of a recession. And since then, obviously, the virus situations got much worse and then the kind of follow-on economic situation's much worse. So to put this in perspective, all of the previous disruptions that we traded, like you mentioned, 9-11 was particularly a United States uh, issue. Um, there's been a few recessions that have been regional, you know, something like the Southeast Asian currency crisis in the 90s, you know, that have affected more than one country. This is really the first thing that's affected every single country. It's, that's what's so unique about it. And up until 10 years ago, the IMF called it a global recession if growth was less than 3% positive, which, you know, this thing's going to be a huge negative. So we hadn't had, from World War II until uh, 2009, we hadn't had the global GDP go negative ever like we had 50 years of always going up. The U.S. might be in recession, but the rest of the world is fine or Southeast Asia might be in recession and the the rest of the world is fine. This is the entire globe is going into a recession. And just to put things into kind of, you know, you have to, to dumb it down. This is the simplest way to think about it is the least bad way to combat this virus is if everybody on earth sheltered in place for two weeks. And then we test the people who have symptoms and they get medical treatment and everyone else gets back to work. That is the minimum to deal with this thing. And two weeks divided by 52 weeks is 4%. You know, so the minimum hit from this thing is 4% of GDP. And right now we're certainly not doing it that way. We're not having everybody in our stock. We're kinda, you know, China stopped and now they're starting and now other places are stopping. and so. Um, I, I think the impact to global GDP is going to be unprecedented.
1: All right. So help someone like me understand this. When you talk about a 3% growth still being, a uh, growth of GDP could still lead to recession, somebody like me thinks, well, hold on. If we're bigger than last year and we were good last year, how, how does 3% growth still lead to recession? How come we can't just take a I take a small, even a small haircut. Help someone like me understand why growth is so important, the rate of growth is so important. What is the trickle effect of not having the right levels of growth?
0: Well, yeah, you know, the, the um, kind of since the Industrial Revolution, we've seen incredible increases in, in growth per capita, and we've really come to expect that. And so we, we view trend as being several percent of positive growth. It's just kind of the natural benefit of enhanced productivity or, or other you know ways that we become more wealthy per capita and this the, the stat about the imf thinking a recession was anything less than three percent positive growth is very similar when i moved to japan in the early 90s right before or great right essentially during their disruption i was trading interest rates and equity derivatives and japan had been in a you know 50-year growth expansion and they were just starting to reel from the decline of the Nikkei. The Nikkei fell you know, 80% ultimately. And they had overnight rates at 6% at the time. And we're, we're forecasting what they called a Japanese recession, which is like the IMF definition, positive growth, but less than 3%. And so I think it just is, it's hard for people to get their heads around. Growth doesn't always have to happen. And if there's something like this, which is global in nature, it really can... Make all of growth shrink. There are calls now. Um, it's amazing how fast things are changing. We wrote our investor letter about a week ago, and at the time, you know, it's probably the most, you know, it's on the edge of being the most strident, you know, forecast of what's happening. Since then, Goldman Sachs has revised their growth rate for the United States to minus 34% seasonally adjusted annual rate, right? Like they're just numbers that are just off the charts. And, and we just saw in unemployment claims, you know, the last recession, I think the peak was 400,000 or something like that per week. And we've had 6 million. I mean, it's just, you know, these things are literally off the charts.
1: Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned early on is the fragility of supply chains. And I was thinking about it the other day. I was trying to think about different kind of scenarios. So we go and do our shopping and they're keeping the food supply chain going, which is great. But then I was thinking about, well, what about, the companies that build the machinery that the farms use are they still going or what about the chemical companies that are providing the supplies for the shampoo manufacturers and then I was starting to think well does even the basic supply chains that we need in terms of kind of food and uh, keeping the energy services going are they at risk because of breakdowns in other areas of the supply chain and then I couldn't help but think well, also, what about all the small islands, all the small holiday resort islands that reply, re, rely on all their food to be imported? And I, I guess some of the effects on this we're not going to see for perhaps months.
0: Oh, yeah. So we did feature uh, Milton Friedman's free-to-choose uh, pencil clip in our uh, investor letter. And I think it's a great analog for what's going on here. It is his, uh, it's a couple minute video it's on YouTube you know if, you, if anyone's interested you take it take a look at it it's great he just said there's no one on earth that could make this thing he's holding up just a normal lead pencil and you know it costs like five, 10 cents but there's nobody that has the skills and complete ability to make it on their own you know somebody had to cut the lumber down and somebody had to build the saw and to get the saw somebody had to make steel and it's just an incredibly complicated thing to build even the simplest little uh, household item and I really think that's the issue here. That trying to uh, restart all these supply chains could be very, very difficult, especially with the asynchronous nature that the virus is ebbing and flowing around the world. So, you know, China basically shut down completely for two months. It's trying to restart, but all the people they'd be selling their products to are now all shut down. So, it's going to be really hard. And, and you know, the the supply chain <laughs> breakdown is evident in things that are not very high tech like toilet paper it's completely sold out of every store in our area and that might be irrational and i'm not you know gonna use that as like some super deep metaphor but it's just saying if you can't if you can't keep a supply chain for something so simple as toilet paper moving it's gonna be really hard to put a ventilator together you know there's 1500 parts to a ventilator that come from 25 countries i mean that's really the issue. Is that with the entire world kind of frozen, it's really, really difficult to restart these supply chains.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that piece from uh, Milton Friedman because I'd heard the statement before about making a pencil, but I'd never heard the full explanation. I've actually, I actually even printed it out here in front of me just in case I needed it. But there was also you also put another quote from Milton Friedman at the start. Free to choose, a personal state statement maintains that the free market works best. For members of society. Have you always been a believer in free markets, or is this something that you're considering at a deeper level now because of what is actually happening and the decisions that the governments are having to make with regards to bailing out companies, for example?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the last century's proven that a free market is better than the other systems people have tried. And you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s, you know, it was almost a religion uh, because we were in kind of an active war with the command economies on earth. And, you know, ultimately the command economies all all kind of failed and now are, are market driven. But it is, when I was rereading it, it is ironic that, you know, Milton Friedman's, you know, concept that a free market works best for all members of a society, you know, it might not be true that if, every county and every state and every country is free to choose their own policies. It might be suboptimal right now. And it's just, you know, it is a, it's a poignant thought that, you know, right now we actually need to all be pulling together and, and using the same policies rather than every small group around the world, you know, trying their own thing.
1: It was funny. I went and researched him afterwards. Uh, I, I mean, I know who Milton Freeman is, but I found an interesting quote where he said, I'm a libertarian with a small I and a Republican with a capital R. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So what is your view on this though? Do you believe that the US government should let companies fail? Do you believe they should be bailing out companies? It's quite an interesting time because I saw a quote somebody put on Twitter that I I can't remember exactly. It was along the lines of company owners have never had a time like this where they have zero income and they can't plan for when their income will start again.
0: Yeah, so um, I saw a great tweet where somebody said two trillion dollars, and then uh, three hundred thirty Amer- million Americans. That's sixty five hundred bucks. Where's my other fifty two hundred bucks? <laughs> and that is a great way to say it is if if we're gonna spend you know sixty five hundred dollars per person, which is you know. Twenty thousand dollars per family. Uh, it'd be great to see it get to the people who are really vulnerable. And I, you know, my partner actually's read the entire stimulus bill. I haven't yet, but there's huge things in there about like chargebacks of real estate depreciation and stuff like that. I'm not entirely sure, you know, how that's really going to help the economy.
1: Right. Okay. You uh, you also talk about the Great Depression in there. And I was watching a documentary. About that the other day, and it's very hard to even comprehend what it was like to live through that, but you noted the crash of this was twice as fast as the nineteen twenty nine great depression Now, the circumstances are different, like Donald Trump has obviously said this is uh this is a pausing of the economy, the economy was. In a very good shape. I mean, I I don't hundred percent agree with him. I think something was ready to pop anyway. But have you looked at the Great Depression, and are there any parallels with that that we can look at to for this, and in in ways in which the market may restart?
0: You know, uh, probably a better analog would be the nineteen eighteen to twenty Spanish flu uh, uh, influenza epidemic because it you know has similar you know imports of what we're doing here and. There, um, there's very clear data that the, the cities all did very different things. Uh, San Francisco did essentially nothing on uh, social distancing. Los Angeles was very, very strict in shutting down everything. Uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul had very, very different policies, even though they're right across the river from each other. And so we have these great control group experiments, and it showed that the cities that were very aggressive at doing social distancing early and kept it the longest obviously had much, much better health outcomes, much lower fatalities, but they actually had better economic outcomes. And that's the bit that I think over the next three or four weeks, people are going to start you know, really digging into. There, there's been some talk on the national level that it's, everything's just a trade-off. You know, either you want to protect people's health or you want to have the economy, you know, humming along. And it does seem to, to you know, my belief is if we really address the the virus in a very intense national way for a very short period of time, ultimately it'll do less damage to the economy than what we're doing now, which is a very kind of rolling, piecemeal um, way. So, you know, to the uh, in our investor letter, my partner Joey Crew did a analysis of how. The financial markets performed into and out of the Spanish influenza, uh, which is you know very similar to what we're dealing with here. Um, and then the graph about the, the price of the S&P falling twice as fast as prior to the Great Depression, I think it's a great way to emphasize to people, this is just completely a unique thing. Um, all those other recessions were caused by lack of either income or credit. and we have policies to deal with that right we have monetary and fiscal policy we've we've dealt with you know scores of those recessions over the last two centuries you really know how to deal with that this is an invisible barrier to commerce i mean it's completely different and a couple of weeks ago the fed cut 100 basis points and my thought was that has absolutely zero impact on the economy in the old days you cut hundred basis points, you know, people will refinance their mortgage or do something different, and you know, it'll spur the economy. But you know, what are you going to do, say to your wife, you know, hey, the Fed cut rates hundred basis points. Let's go to the movies. Like, you know, they could cut rates rates a thousand basis points, and I wouldn't go to the movies. So, I just think that the policies that we're used to using, fiscal and monetary stimulus, really are going to have very little impact against this virus, and and so. But the net of it is, you know, where we're probably ultimately going in this discussion is that if you're using a policy of essentially just increasing the quantity of money at unprecedented rates, it probably will inflate the price of things you can't increase the quantity of like stocks or gold or Bitcoin.
1: Right. OK. Just so somebody listen to this, if they're not somebody who really understands the difference between monetary and fiscal policy what are they and how do they work together so in t- typical
0: times recessions are caused by you know either a lack of income because uh, companies have laid off workers and so people don't have the income to, to buy goods and services or like the um, 2008-9 crisis it was essentially a lack of credit that uh, there were some unwise lending done in the the residential mortgage market and so it's very hard uh, to get credit and and to soften those blows you can lower interest rates and uh, for example in the 2008-9 crisis the united states lowered interest rates four and a half percent so that really helps like you know if if you lower rates four and a half percent and a lot of americans can getting a lower rate on their mortgage and the extra money they're saving on their monthly mortgage payment. They can use to, you know, buy a car or, or, you know, go to the movies or whatever. And in this instance, we only had 150 basis points of ammo left, you know, rates were already very close to zero. So, uh, it's very difficult to, 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 to do any more than that. And on a global basis this time, it's, it's even more striking. The last recession, 2008-9. globally rates were cut about three percentage points every so many countries are already basically at zero that jp morgan is forecasting only 55 basis points or a half a percent of cuts globally and you know a half a percent is a pretty small amount in any case and especially when you're combating an uh, you know an invisible little virus so it's a it's just it seems like the policies that worked in the past cutting interest rates and in, Increasing spending just won't do much. And on the spending thing, it's very typical for the government to try and run what's called a counter-cyclical fiscal policy. So, you know, when the economy is booming, the government typically should be running a surplus, you know, taking in more tax receipts because lots of people are earning money. So they're paying taxes and lots of people are selling uh, assets like stocks or, or um, real estate or profits, paying capital gains tax. So the government should be running a large surplus in the boom times and then when the uh, economy enters recession, the government should be able to essentially counteract that by spending more money either through things like, you know, unemployment insurance, replacing lost income or in infrastructure spending, you know, it's a great time to build hospitals, universities, uh, interstate highways, things like that. This time, unfortunately, we entered it with a huge structural deficit right in the best of times, the government, US government, was spending 31% more than it was taking in. So the government already had a huge deficit, even with record employment, record uh, stock prices. Uh, So switching from that to this new unprecedented stimulus will add an enormous amount of debt onto the balance sheet of the United States.
1: And if this lockdown is lengthened, we go on for many more months, which is a potential, or we go through a period whereby we allow parts of the economy to get going, that's going to hamper the ability for things to pick up again quickly. So they only have the ability to keep printing money and keep keep giving money out there. So what is the risk there? Is, do do we re- run the risk of, I don't think perhaps a hyperinflationary situation, say like Venezuela and Zimbabwe, but do we run the risk of having an inflationary situation similar to say Argentina had under La Carolita? Was it La Carolita? And will, I mean, I've never really experienced uh, issues with inflation in the UK because it's always been at such low levels. You don't really, you don't feel the pain like maybe the countries when they have 10, 20, 30% inflation. Are we at any risk of this happening?
0: Oh, we are. And and I would say there's two just two really important parts to that question. One is the, the one that you said, you know, talking about not really feeling the pain in the UK. Um, in the developed world, the debasement of our currency happens slowly enough. We kind of don't notice it. Obviously, if you live in Zimbabwe, you are an expert on the impact of hyperinflation. You know everything about it. And Argentina is devalued seven times in this century, right, or in the last hundred years. So if you're an Argentine, you completely understand it. But if you're living in the United Kingdom or in the United States, you don't notice it, but it is happening. And the, the my best example of the, how crappy paper money is, the British pound sterling, obviously, used to be worth a pound of sterling silver. They have printed so many pieces of paper money, it takes 184 paper pounds to buy one pound of sterling silver. So every day you go about your business, you don't notice it, but your currency is very quickly being debased. And even just from a simplistic standpoint, in my lifetime, quarters and dimes were made out of silver. Like it's unthinkable now, right? We've printed so many of them, there's no way we could print them out of silver. And uh, even pennies, which used to be copper, now are worth way more to melt them than they are as a one one hundredth of a dollar increment. So even the the least bad paper currencies are pretty terrible. The U.S. dollar has lost 90% of its purchasing power since 1950. Um, Again, it happens slowly. It only happens 3-4% a year, so you don't notice it. But It it does happen. So that's kind of half the answer. The other half of the answer is when you talk about hyperinflation, most people kind of think about the price of bread or, you know, some consumer good that's in our minds. And what's happened over the last 25 years, basically, is there's been a split between things that are very easy to produce by the exploding supply of global labor Uh, Sometimes called the peace dividend. There's a couple billion people that used to be in communist regimes kind of cut off from the world who are now entering the global market and they're willing to make flip-flops and They're willing to make flip-flops at even lower prices than you used to be able to buy flip-flops, right? So you're getting this enormous influx of labor, which is making normal consumer goods Cheaper and cheaper all the time like a great example would be flat-screen TVs, right? 20 years ago you know, a tiny flat screen TV was super expensive. And now you can buy like a seven foot wide one for like 800 bucks, right? You know, it, just, it just gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper because there's billions of people that are learning how to make a flat screen TV. However, there's nobody on earth that can make another ounce of gold or another Bitcoin or uh, another share of IBM. So no matter how many people are flooding the labor market, and we just had the biggest shock to the labor market. In our, you know, in the last hundred years, of all the people that have um, recently lost their jobs, so like I, am not even remotely forecasting inflation in the consumer price index basket of goods, right? Uh, with the notable exception of toilet paper, that might be the one consumer item that <laughs> is going to go up in price. But for like flat screen TVs, everything else, all that stuff, but it's because you can make an infinite amount of those things that cannot be quantitatively eased, like gold, uh, like Real estate like stocks and Bitcoin, those are going to go up relative to where they would be otherwise. And that's the super important statement is the U.S. stock market is down 26 percent since the beginning of the year. If we hadn't printed two trillion dollars, it would be down 50 percent. And so, yes, the, <laughs> that's the whole objective of these policies to inflate the price of things uh, in, Stocks are just kind of the most famous barometer, but they'll inflate the price of all fixed quantity things, real estate, stocks, gold, Bitcoin.
1: Next up, I talk to Dan more about the macro economy post-coronavirus. But before that, I have a message from my amazing sponsors. So firstly, let's talk about my new sponsor, sportsbet.io. So fancy your chance of winning some Bitcoin this weekend? Sportsbet have organised the Premier What Bitcoin Did Poker tournament and they have put up one Bitcoin in prizes and there is also a bounty for taking me out. If you check out my Twitter, you can find out how to register there. Now, you should know who sportsbet.io are. They are the company that put the Bitcoin logo on a Premier League shirt. And after inviting me to watch Watford play a couple of times, they asked to sponsor the podcast. And with all this crazy coronavirus shit going on and sports ending, I was kind of thinking, "Mm, maybe they won't come through with it. And they got in touch and they're like, Pete, don't worry about it. We got you. We want to support the show. So I registered. I've been checking out the site. I've been having a play. I am now a massive fan of Russian ping pong. (laughs) The only live sport which seems to be happening right now. But not only that, they've got. Bunch of other stuff on the site. They're offering markets for esports, including eFifa. They've got their Bitcoin casino, and also my favourite, the poker rooms. So hopefully, I will see some of you in the poker tournament this Sunday. If you want to find out more, head over to SportsBet.io, which is S P O R T S B E T.io. Also, we have my other sponsor, CoinTracker, and I caught up with Chandan this week. I asked him how it's going, and he said, "Look, Pete." We've had a bunch of people inquire, a bunch of people have come via the show, so that's super interesting because I did get a bit of stick. People are like, why have you got a tax company on? Listen, none of us want to pay tax, right? Tax is bullshit. I don't want to pay it, (laughs) but there is a reality that if you don't pay your tax, you're running a risk of the man coming after you. Look, it's your choice if you don't want to do it. I pay my tax because I don't want to go to jail. And you know what? When Cointracker got in touch, I checked out the software. It could not have been easier to use. Literally two minutes it took to upload my wallets and my exchanges, and there it was. There was my tax calculated, sent off to my accountant, all done. Now, filings for Cointracker work in the US, UK, Canada, and Australia, and it's free if you've got less than 200 transactions. If you've got more than that, if you're a crazy trader and you've got hundreds of thousands of trades, then... You can get a ten percent discount. You just need to use the link cointracker.io forward slash a forward slash wbd and cointracker is c o i n t r a c k e r. It's interesting. I um I interviewed Ralph Powell the other day. You know, you know Ralph from Real Vision. And, oh, and um, I know him um, from
0: way back. Uh, when I was a he was he was uh, my contact at Goldman, and then. Uh, he and I did just sit down for an interview a couple of days ago. So I'm very familiar with his current views.
1: Ah. So I asked him because I um, I post all my Bitcoin shows to my Facebook and I'm always telling my friends and there's barely ever any interest. And even right now, as the government in the UK has stepped in, often offering, offering to pay 80% of wages, a uh, lot of people, have uh, my friends have been saying, oh, this is great. You know, I'm, I'm protected. This is good. They're rescuing the economy. But none of them understand what this influx of new money means and I've been saying to people you need to you need to have a think about this you need to understand the the potential risks for this so I turned around to Rao and I said look if you were going to give some simple advice to people who are listening to this people are just going to work and they're coming home and well they're not going to work at the moment but but generally speaking they would be going to work coming home and just having a a little bit of time in the evening what would you do and I'll tell you his advice he said one you, you need cash but you want physical cash be careful of the banks. So make sure you got some physical cash in the house. He said, make sure you cut your spend, be prepared to hustle. And then he said, own some scarce assets like gold and Bitcoin. So that, that was his advice. And the funny thing is, look, I'm a Bitcoiner, Dan. I don't own any gold, but I've also been tracking the Bitcoin price through this crisis. And I was thinking, actually, I probably should have a good balance between gold, Bitcoin and cash. Where are you with this kind of position at the moment?
0: Yeah, so I agree with that sentiment. Is that in an era where you know paper money is the least scarce thing on earth, they're just printing it at ten percent of GDP clips, you know, literally unprecedented amounts are being created. So that is is not going to go up in value. The things that uh, like you know consumer goods, you can make lots of them. That's probably not going to go up much, but the scarce assets will. And so um, you know, gold obviously. A candidate and it's been you know a great store of wealth for 5,000 years, so it's not going to go away tomorrow. I think Bitcoin's better than gold, but it's they're similar. And if somebody said, hey, your choice is you can either hold a bunch of paper money or a bunch of gold right now, you got to buy the gold. Gold's going to do way better mm-hmm. than paper money. And in fact, gold's up on the year when everything else on the planet is down, right? The uh, oil's down, Fifty-six percent. The Nasdaq's down eighteen percent. Stocks are down twenty-five percent. So having gold be up, you know, proves my thesis. Um, and it's notable. Bitcoin's almost up on the year. It's down just a tiny bit, about five percent. Uh, so you know, I, I I agree with Raul's thought is that you know when when they're increasing the supply of paper money at, at just these astronomical rates you kind of want to be in something that they can't print more of. And you can't print more gold. You can't print more Bitcoin. Uh, you can't print more, you know, IBM shares or whatever. You know, anything that's going to be protected. But the stock market is, you know, it's it's trickier because, you know, they, they have earnings issues and all that. Whereas gold, you know, the, the earnings never change on gold and the Bitcoin. Um, so I think the safest place to be is in scarce assets that don't have any impact. And then, you know, I, I actually really do believe that, this is going to be a really important time to prove out the functionality of Bitcoin,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: a, a line that I put in our investor letter, I think it's, it still resonates with me. Bitcoin was born in a financial crisis; it will come of age in this one, and I really believe that's true. We're already seeing it. Um, you know, Satoshi created Bitcoin essentially to, you know, as a response to the last financial crisis and the use cases are really going to shine here and we're already seeing it so many businesses are essentially kind of freezing and not working whereas bitcoin still works great and we're investing in a bunch of companies to help people move money across borders they're all seeing record months of bitcoin use and a lot of them don't actually advertise that it's bitcoin that actually is doing that stuff behind the scenes they just say it's remittance or money movement or whatever but they use bitcoin to move money uh behind the scenes and they're all seeing record volumes this month because you know Bitcoin works great. You know there's no barriers. There's you know it's instantaneous. It's free. You know we're invested in one company that has kiosks in grocery stores, and that's the only thing that's open right now. And so if you want to send 500 bucks, you can go to your grocery store and feed the paper money in the machine, and you know the money will pop out in Mexico or the Philippines or wherever you're trying to get it. So. I, you know, I really think that this will, this will be a, a test. Basically, in a year or two, when we look back, Bitcoin and blockchains either going to have been very impactful, and it's off to the races, or this it will fail.
1: I think I know one of those businesses you're talking about as well, because I was texting my buddy last night. It doesn't live far from you, Michael Dunworth. Oh, yeah. He's uh, from Wire. And uh, yeah, I was texting him about it last night. And yeah, so let me ask you, one of the things is if we're seeing record use of Bitcoin at this moment, but the price itself crashed. And kind of, there was a lot of correlation there between what happened with the S&P. We are seeing a potential decoupling right now. What do you think is going on there? Do you think the speculation is out of kilter with the actual use? Is that something you're tracking?
0: Yeah, so the the hope is that bitcoin is uncorrelated with the rest of the world and you know there was a time you know when i started trading everything was uncorrelated i was a bond trader and i came to work every day and i just thought about interest rates i had no interest in what was happening in oil i had no interest in what the SP was doing i was able to just trade my market and then portfolio theory took over and Basically, everybody bought the same portfolio. You know, everyone has a bit of commodities. Everybody has stocks. Everybody has bonds. And even, you know, our business, Alts, Alternatives, isn't an alternative anymore. Everybody's got them. They're not not different. And so crypto is the one thing that is a new asset class. So it's really still statistically uncorrelated. It has very low correlation over long periods of time. However, there's an asterisk on that. When the world freaks out, it is correlated. And so in in our investor letter, which if any of your listeners want to see, it's on our website, um, has a graph that shows there's been five big downdrafts in the S&P 500 since Bitcoin uh, was liquid to trade. And in each of those, Bitcoin did become positively correlated with the S&P and did drop with the S&P. However, that correlation breaks down after about eight weeks. And it then goes back to essentially zero correlation. And that's... actually how we've traded it through this crisis is right when uh, the scale of this was becoming apparent, we took our risk down, sold, sold cryptocurrencies. We actually increased our exposure to Bitcoin. We can talk about that later, but we, we essentially took down risk, but only for a, a couple of weeks. And now we're back to full limit long and cryptocurrency has been grinding up over the last, uh, gosh, basically since about March 16th, so two weeks. And I think it's going to take a few months for the whole world to kind of sort through their own problems. You know, most money managers, they're not thinking about new assets they can invest in. They're thinking about their kids and their family and, you know, what what they're doing to protect themselves. But over the next couple of months, you know, people will start kind of refocusing on new opportunities. And, you know, I think the crypto markets will really explode about, you know, three to nine months from now, basically. Like, not right now, but once people really have the time to look into it, they'll really explode. I, I, I. From all the cycles I've seen over thirty-five years, I have a very strong intuition that Bitcoin will hit a record price within the next twelve months, and maybe like way higher than that.
1: Interesting. Okay, before we just get into the the detail on the Bitcoin, what is your and it's as short as answer as you can give? But what is your personal thesis on Bitcoin?
0: You know, my thesis is. That it's kind of, when there's a a technology that's disruptive, it's called a category killer. Bitcoin's a serial killer. It's going to go through dozens of different industries. And that's why I think it's so valuable, is that, you know, some people call it digital gold. Yeah, and it is. It's awesome. It's digital gold does that. But you can keep registries of all kinds of other non-financial assets on a blockchain. You know, you can you do so many different things with Bitcoin and blockchain. And and so that's why I think it's going to rip through dozens of different markets. And if you think about it, the internet changed everything except for finance, right? Like banks are basically exactly the same as they were, you know, sixty years ago. And, you know, all those entities are all basically the same Western union has been around for 160 years. Amex has been around for 160 years. All these companies are super old, you know, Wells Fargo used to be a stagecoach for gold, right? You know, like it's, these are all really, really old companies uh, that haven't changed much. And that's basically what Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are going to do, is bring the Internet to finance. And it's going to massively drop the cost of sending money. The analog I've always loved for, for Bitcoin is it's money over IP. And VoIP completely disrupted the telephony business. Like back in the day, when I was in college, you had to really think about how much you were going to spend on the phone because it was expensive. And there was a point in American history where AT&T was 16% of the market cap of the United States. And now you never even think about it. Like you stream Netflix on your phone, right? Like, you know, and it's all because we're not controlled by a monopolist anymore. You know, back in the day, if I want to call you, I had to pay AT&T and British Telecom. And that's the only way I could get in touch with you. And now you can route money or you can route voice over IP and... It's dropped the price so that we don't even notice it anymore. The quantity of data has exploded so much that we literally don't have enough copper on earth to run the internet on copper wires. Like if we try to run the internet now on copper, it would literally physically, we don't have enough copper. So that's basically what's going to happen in the the money business is we're going to drop the cost of sending money so low that it's going to bring so many new people into the financial markets uh, micro-labor, micro-payments, all these really cool things are going to happen. So I think Bitcoin and other blockchains are going to disrupt the current oligopolis that control money movement. Uh, and think about this, right? The average remittance cost is 9%. And, you know, we're in the financial markets. That's just a number, 900 base points, whatever. That's a month's wages for the migrant, right? The migrant has to work for an entire month just to pay their remittance company. And their family only gets 11 months wages. That's crazy. And Bitcoin's easily gonna take that out. And so when we look back, and but it's gonna take a while, you know, it's gonna take a couple decades to really do all this. So when we look back, you know, 10 or 20 years from now, I think it's gonna have a huge positive impact on the world. And and the reason kind of sum up this whole you know, very multifaceted discussion is mm-hmm. the reason I like Bitcoin is it's the miracle whip of finance. Like you can do so many different things with it. And it's taking on all the biggest markets. Like, if you're investing in some kind of new medical device and, you know, there's only 100,000 people on Earth that have that condition, you can kind of figure out the most you can ever make investing in that thing. But this is taking on literally the biggest things on Earth. It's taking on wealth storage. It's taking on digital payments. It's taking on remittance. It's taking on gold. You know, gold's a $10 trillion thing. You know, Bitcoin only gets 4% of the gold markets to be a home run. And that's why I always love when people say oh bitcoin failed it's just digital gold it's like man that's the best failure i've ever seen that's awesome and uh and then it's taking on money and money used to be a hundred trillion dollar thing and now it's 104 trillion (laughs) it's growing fast so if bitcoin gets you know even a very small fraction of the market for money it's just going to be huge you know money is one of the only faith-based things out there and people get pretty heated about it and there's often people like, "Hey," You know, the U.S. dollar is awesome. We don't need another currency. There's already 200 currencies on Earth. You know, what's 201, right? Like 202. You know, that's my view is we already have 200 currencies. All of them are depreciating at pretty rapid rate. And 150 of them are just terrible. And so you have one like Bitcoin that's going up. That's great.
1: So we've got you as, as on Team Bitcoin now. We've got... We've got Rao, Powell on Team Bitcoin. We've got Dan Tapiero on Team Bitcoin. We've got my buddy Travis Kling. He's on Bitcoin. So we've got people coming in from the traditional markets in here. But you must have a lot of friends who are we call luddites who aren't in Bitcoin yet. But you must be talking to these people. Are you seeing more interest? And what are what are the rejections you're still getting from your friends from the old traditional markets?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, so. You know, I grew up as a global macro investor and I worked with Dan Tapiero and, you know, Mike Novogratz and, you know, all these guys and huge, huge take up of blockchain and Bitcoin from that group, right? Because we're trained to see disruptions. We're trained to see things that have very asymmetric returns, you know? Yeah, you could lose one times your money, but you might make 40 times your money. And, you know, so it's been fun. I was talking to Raul, who I've known for 30 years too, about this, that People that do what we did in the old days are really drawn to this. You know, Alan Howard and you know, all these guys that are trained to look for these disruptions just can't not be excited about Bitcoin, right? So it is kind of like a, a old friend network. You know, all these people that have been you know doing business for a long, long time. So when you ask, like, what do my friends that are negative on Bitcoin say? That is my challenge for your listeners. I would love somebody to send me an anti-Bitcoin paper that's more than four sentences by somebody that's reputable. And I have been looking for that for eight years and I haven't found it. You get the Warren Buffett's like, oh Bitcoin's rat poison or whatever. That's fine. He's a he's a genius investor. If he wants to do his little one-word soundbite thing, that's great. But like I'm talking, I, I really would love to read the negative case by somebody who's respected as an intelligent investor, that's more than like two or three sentences. Because you do get, there's some famous hedge fund managers that occasionally, you know, say it's a bubble or whatever, you know. But I really am, you know, to, to promote intellectual honesty in your investing, you should always be challenging your views. And that to me is like the great white rhino. I want somebody to bag a paper written about why Bitcoin's not going to go up that has more than like three sentences in it and send it to me.
1: Yeah. You can't find it.
0: (laughs) It really just doesn't exist. You get a couple of Paul Krugman articles once in a while, but like there's never anything with any substance that's negative. And so the point being, I basically don't have too many uh, friends that are, you know, essentially vocally against it. You know, like I'm sure there's some people out there that aren't long and don't want to say it, you know, too loudly, but I really have never heard a very cogent argument of why not to be invested.
1: See, I I've always compared it to CDs to MP3s and I was buying CDs probably for at least three or four years longer than I should have. I was yeah. I kept buying them because I wanted to hold that CD. I wanted the inlay card and I refused to buy MP3s and then I did. And then eventually I stopped buying CDs and now I have a cupboard full of CDs that never get touched anymore and I just think for some people, they cannot get over that that thought that they're going from a physical asset, like a lump of gold, even if they yeah. don't own it. They know it exists somewhere to this concept of a digital gold. I think it's too much for people to get their head around, and it's sometimes it's too complicated. And also, it may shift. I think for someone like Warren Buffett, it might shift his world too much. It yeah. might just be too big a step for him to, to take.
0: Yeah, so I love that perspective, and it it reminds me of another very positive story I wanted to share with you, is um, the use of USDC stablecoin has exploded in the pandemic. It's up 60% since uh, the beginning of March. And to me, that's another great proof of blockchain working, that if you have your money in a Bank that in the old world provided trust, right? Uh, And that's the term Satoshi (laughs) loves to use in the white paper. But that trust is levered 40 times, and all the assets you're leaving on deposit with your bank, like Lehman Brothers or whoever it would be, are then relent out to 39 other people. When something bad happens, you could end up losing all of your money. If you own USDC, You can transfer it around the world instantaneously. You can do whatever you want. And it is backed by 100% U.S. treasury bills and no leverage. There's nobody else involved. There's no other, you know, uh, 40 to 1 leverage. And so when the shit really hits the fan, I think I'd rather own USDC than, you know, have my money in XYZ Bank, right? And yeah, you know, governments often are, think things are too big to fail or whatever, but you're going to see things like USDC do really well because it is safer, right? There's less points of failure in, in the system. And so I would keep a couple of things, you know, I'm keeping my eye on are the volume of USDC, the volume of transactions at these uh, cross-border payment companies and p- payment companies like WIRE. You know, those are the indicators and they're all real time of whether blockchain is proving itself in this crisis. And so far, it really has.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you should say that. I'm not sure what the insurance is in US banks, and I think the UK is up to about £80,000. But we did see in Europe, we saw a haircut on the bank accounts in Greece and Cyprus, I think it was. So it is a potential risk. But there's also that potential risk that there may be some limitations on how much money you can take out. As we've had a run on the toilet rolls we could have a run on cash. It is a possibility, and I I had similar been thinking about. Should I actually be transferring some of my pounds into some stable coin somewhere? Uh, it, it's definitely on my mind, uh, like you. So that, that's a that is an interesting point. All right. So listen, you. You know these guys. They, they're sat on a lot of money. We're in a very weird time. Investors want to invest. Some of them are sat on an awful lot of money. What are their options now? We know Bitcoin is an option. What are their other options? Is it gold? Is it Bitcoin? Is Are there other things I'm not thinking about? Because they're going to have to start moving this money around at some point.
0: Yeah, so since I got mesmerized by Bitcoin, I haven't really followed the other securities markets like I did back in the day. So I'm not super close to it but my hunch is i think that equities are really going to struggle because i think that you know obviously a month ago they're at record high so it's not like they started out super cheap and i just think people are having a very hard time getting their heads around how big this economic impact is going to be and as an example i'll use a phrase that you i think slipped in earlier a v-shaped recovery and people are already starting to talk about that I I think this is the most complicated and and really crazy environment I've ever experienced and so much uncertainty. The only thing I'm certain of, it's not going to be a V-shaped recovery. Like, I don't know what it's going to look like, but the only thing I know is it's not going to be V-shaped because you mentioned September 11. September 11 is a great example of a V-shaped impact. Every plane in the United States was grounded for three days and then every plane got in the air and everything restarted. This thing is so hard to restart. There's a great photo of, uh, you know, Wuhan opened up in like the movie theater in Wuhan. Zero people, right? Like who's going to the movies? Like even if, you know, on April 30th, uh, you know, the CDC or some, you know, some, you know, entity says everything's totally fine. Everybody get back to work. It's all awesome. Man, I think it's going to be hard to get people to come back to work. And, uh, and especially to come back to their old things, like, you know, going to gyms or going to movie theaters, you know, those those habits. It, it's a psychological impact. Right. I and mean, it's not an economic thing. It's a psychological impact. So I think it's going to be very slow getting back. Um, so that means the economy is going to be, you know, grinding for a lot longer than people uh, expect. And there was an article that I, I highlighted in our investor letter that was an op-ed in The New York Times is to fight coronavirus. We've got to get medieval on it. I love that. It's a great, it's a great line. And it is what we have to do. We have to go to super medieval lifestyle. We all have to basically stay within a couple of miles of our homes, which is the way people live in the Middle Ages, right? The only problem is medieval GDP was low and stagnant, right? Like if we all have to combat this virus <clears throat> by essentially not moving, it's really hard to produce goods and services. And so I think it's going to be hard on equities. That's the longest. It's just like, I, I don't think I'd be buying equities yet. I would be buying things that, that have no impact from the virus, like gold, that are in fixed quantity. Um, so gold's one. I think Bitcoin's a great example because it has probably a positive uh, growth potential from this thing. And then there are going to be things like distressed debt. You know, there, there are businesses that typically do well after these disruptions that have essentially been doing nothing for the last 10 years because there's no distress in the world that'll now be great types of investment so if I were an investor I would you know allocate a bit of my money to, to distress debt a bit of my money to gold a bit of my money to um, you know buying things like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies
1: you, you did mention real estate before so funny enough this uh, the, when I bought this house I mean right now I bought it in June, I think it was June 2008. I bought it the month before the crash, yep. the big crash. So instantly the price dropped. And I was just about to move house. I was I'd, I accepted an offer of mine. I'd made an offer in another house. And then, well, we can't do anything at, right now at the moment. But I thought there's a chance that the house prices might crash. But you mentioned earlier that might not. What's your kind of view on house real estate?
0: Oh, my view would be I think all assets – That are kind of income based, like houses or equities or whatever, are probably going to go down a lot, you know, because it's just, we've just endured a massive shock. And you um, called the last recession the big recession. No, no, that's the small recession. The one we're in now is the big big recession, is unfortunately the truth. And so I think they will go down a lot. Obviously, the governments are fighting that with fiscal policy and, you know, increasing. The amount of money that people have by two trillion dollars, so that'll mitigate the damage to stocks and real estate. Uh, but you know, I, 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 you know, you'd imagine they're going to reprice much lower. You know, many stock markets are already down. You know, thirty or in Latin America it's down forty percent. You know, and I would just think real estate's got to follow stocks, but slower. Obviously, what happens in, in real estate or venture and things like that is basically just transactions go to zero while the buyers and the sellers trying to figure out where the real price is, where stocks trade every nanosecond, so you get a a real-time reset.
1: Right, okay. All right. Well, listen, look, this has been everything I thought it would be. Glad to finally get you on. Just a close-out question, just similar to what I asked Raoul, really. I've got a bunch of listeners who maybe aren't macroeconomists, maybe don't fully understand how the economy works, going through various situations at the moment, maybe into Bitcoin, maybe have a mild interest in Bitcoin, what are the kind of things that you would recommend that people keep an eye on? What are the warning signs in the market that you would be looking for that they they might not, or even myself here, Dan, might not even be thinking of looking at And what are the kind of, I know you're not meant to give financial advice, and so maybe you won't, but what, what's the kind of advice you'd give people at a time like now?
0: Yeah, so um, to those that are just trying to get up to speed on how the global macro might impact our crypto markets, you know, I, I'd say we, we put eight or ten pages of our thoughts down in our investor letter. It's welcome for anyone of your listeners to to read. Uh, and then I would follow things like USDC's total issuance. You know, that's a real time way to see if if cryptocurrency is actually being used by people in this crisis. And try and stay abreast of you know whether it's actually the fundamentals are actually working. Unfortunately, some of the companies I referenced, you know are private and so don't share much information. So it's harder for um, non-investors to stay up on it. But, you know, what I'm uh, trying to do is put together a essentially an anonymized index of our portfolio companies traction so that you can see the change in companies like wire or, you know, Bitso in Mexico, or, you know, Veeam, you know, these companies are helping people move money around and just, we're going to try and put together almost a real time index to help, essentially prove out our thesis that blockchain is helping when everything else has kind of come to a, a, a frozen stop.
1: All right, cool. Well, listen, look, appreciate you coming on, Dan. If people want to find out more, where can they find this uh, investor letter? How can they follow you?
0: Yeah. So, um, love to, you know, help spread the, the, the gospel here. Our website, panthercapital.com, has tons of information, lots of, you know, papers other people have written, um, books that are interesting our investor letter if somebody wants the easiest way is just send send an email to ir at pentara capital for our, our investor relations department We'll put you on our investor letter list we're actually um hosting conference calls We're really trying to be transparent and you know get information out to uh people in the community so you know feel free to to get engaged
1: fantastic look the uh the investor update i saw was great it was a really healthy way to look at the market it wasn't too in-depth someone like me who isn't a macroeconomist I could I was able to follow it uh, very well but look appreciate getting you on finally finally got to find out the Pantera story and look wish you the best through this Dan stay stay healthy stay uh stay stay mentally healthy and physically healthy and I hope we all get back to normal as soon as possible
0: yeah thank you so much for having me on and I really look forward to being back on anytime
1: okay so what did you think of that As I said in the intro, I've wanted to get Dan on for a while, and he definitely did not disappoint. Well, he just did, actually. He really disappointed me. I was a bit pissed off he didn't name his fund after Pantera, the thrash metal band. But outside of that, he did not disappoint. I really enjoyed this conversation and hearing how Dan sees this all playing out during and after coronavirus. He sounds super bullish on Bitcoin, which is always good to hear from such a veteran investor. Now, if you haven't checked out my recent episode with Rao Pal, I think you will really enjoy that one as well. Go back and have a listen. That was episode 207. I am going to be trying to get more financial people on the show to help us all navigate these complicated times. If you do have any questions or feedback, make sure you get in touch. I'm always keen to hear from listeners. I do reply to almost anyone. My email address is hello at did.com. And if you do want to check out any of my other content, please head over to defiance.news. You can check out my non-Bitcoin podcast there. And you can also check out the couple of films I've made. Some of it is Bitcoin related. I went to Colombia and Venezuela to look at the crisis there. Yes, that's all at defiance.news. And I do have a YouTube channel Which is youtube.com forward slash C forward slash defiance TV. Listen, look, I hope you're all doing well. These are strange times. Anyone struggling, you can reach out to me. I do reply to all my emails. Happy to chat to anyone. And yeah, stay safe, stay healthy in mind and body. And I will see you all soon.